Hello, podcast listeners. Thanks for tuning in to Break Room Chats, the podcast of the new professionals community of the LAMA uh, dis division of American Library Association. This is Heather James coming to you from Marquette University. And this month, we have a very special guest um, talking about a topical issue that is going to be relevant to many of us um, if it's not already part of your life. Today, we have Kyra Hahn, a librarian at Douglas County Libraries at Castle Pines in Colorado, talking about her advocacy work related to the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, and particularly how most librarians qualify for it. Thank you for being with us today, Kyra. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to get the opportunity to uh, talk to an academic library audience. I haven't had a chance to really do that. We're very excited to have you, and I think this is going to be great. I've been listening to so much um, that you've done related to public libraries, and in so many cases, academic libraries are going to um, benefit from this program as well. Yes, actually, I would love to see it broaden across all the umbrellas under librarianship, because really our school libraries are probably the most impacted, mm -hmm. and then also special libraries, too, depending upon what they're uh, organizational status is as well. Yeah, excellent, excellent. So um, just to get us started, I know that you've covered this in lots of interviews and you covered it in your article which um, won an award from public libraries, um, uh, but to get us sort of on the same page, for those who aren't even familiar, what is the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program? Uh, the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program is a program that was created in 2007 um, under uh, George Bush, um, and it was basically an outcome of part of the College Cost and Reduction Law um, Act that was passed, and it was designed to incentivize working in public service. So it's not just for public librarians, it's for any sort of public service work. So that means that it includes um, not only schools, uh, public libraries, anything related to public service, it includes doctors, nursing, elder care, um, government employees, AmeriCorps and Peace Corps service first responders, military, um, and also, most recently, the disabled. So all of these different groups qualify to participate in the program. Mm -hmm. Although I will say that I do like that Congress members are not eligible to participate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that somehow seems right and balanced, doesn't it? <laughs> um, and when we talk about loan forgiveness, can you explain that a little bit more? It sounds, you know, like it's going to be too good to be true. Are we really just going to forgive the balance on people's student loans? Um, well, let's see here. So mm -hmm. let me go into a little bit of the basics about what the program entails. So basically, if you work... 30 or more hours per week in a qualifying public service organization and you work for 10 or more years, um, 
you you also have to have the right type of loans and you have to certify your employment annually. If you make 120 qualifying payments starting from October 2007 to present, as long as you are still employed by a qualifying public service employer at the time of your forgiveness, then yes, you can apply and they would forgive the outstanding balance that you have. Now, that's not to say that you have not been paying um, because if you follow recent media news coverage, you know, they try to portray it as, oh, we're forgiving, we're forgiving these loans for people who are not paying. No. <laughs> no. People have to make 120 qualifying on-time payments. So it, it really is kind of a co-investment to where, you know, the person who took out the loans and is working in the public service sector is paying into it. And then at the end of that 10-year period, that's when the forgiveness occurs. Um, One of the points that I will make is that right now, currently, it is an all-or-nothing program. So if you don't make it to the 10 years, if you do not complete every single requirement, mm-hmm. then you're not getting forgiveness. Yeah. So so that's how come I want to make sure I make that distinction important that currently right now it's all or nothing. Yeah. And um, I know that that's where there have been some frustrations with the program because for some it feels like, is this really going to happen? Right. Are, are we going to follow through on this? Right. Right. <laughs> so... Yeah. Yeah. So so just to, you know, keep reiterating those points, because I, I also am a participant in the public service loan forgiveness program, although I'm not yet there and <laughs> being ready to apply for forgiveness. Um, there are all those caveats. Right. So it has to be yes. that you are have a qualifying employer while you're making the payments, that you have mm-hmm. a qualifying employer at the time that you apply for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And you have to you have to still be currently employed in yeah. at the time of forgiveness. Yeah. So you can't just get to, to your ten years and say, okay, I give my notice, I'm done, I'm out of here, right. and then apply. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Don't be running for those lucrative library and corporate jobs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I, I'm not sure. Do those exist? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it was sort of an oxymoron. <laughs> um, you also have to be on a qualifying payment plan um, because not every repayment plan yes. fits the bill. Um, primarily, you have to be on um, what mostly what is considered an income-based repayment plan. And basically what that involves is you have to submit an application every year and and include supplemental income information mm-hmm. that they then review and then come back and tell you what your monthly payment is going to be for that 12-month period, and then that's the amount that you pay mm-hmm. for that particular time period. And you have to redo that every year while you're participating in the program for 10 years. Um, And 
I know that there have been some challenges even with that process. I think for for those of us that have um, been trying to do this for a while, um, it I think it causes an anxiety response. <laughs> yeah, I would say. Yeah. Um, because you never know what they're going to come back with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and I have some separate issues, separate concerns about how that process is done that I'll talk about later right. on in our interview. <laughs> Great. Great. Um, so, yes, and then you also have to be making those payments. So the qualifying employer at all of those various points and the qualifying repayment plan and actually making those payments so that there's no confusion being in forbearance um, or being in deferment is not building toward your forgiveness. Um, so if you do that, go into those states, right? That would be correct. So if you're in a deferment or forbearance, you're not earning any of the credits toward the 120 qualifying payments. Mm -hmm. Now, I will say that depending upon what your financial situation is, you know, you can be put on an income-based repayment plan and they can come back and say that your payment amount due is zero. Mm -hmm. If they come back and say that, then you're good to go because even though your payments are zero dollars, they are still counting towards your uh, qualifying payment counts for PSLF. Yeah. So, and yeah. there's a very complicated formula involved that involves, you know, the property, I'm sorry, the poverty mm -hmm. uh, income limits. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not as well versed in math, <laughs> <laughs> so I defer to other experts on that. Um, but yes, it is, it is very possible, depending upon what your income situation is, mm -hmm. that they could come back and say, you have a very low monthly payment or a zero monthly payment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. But that's part of the reason why you recertify every year is because every year, they're looking at what your household financial situation is and determining what they feel is part of your discretionary income. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So. Excellent. Oh, and then one more thing, you have to have the right kind of loans too, right? So there have, you have to be on loans oh, yeah. that qualify, which is not necessarily <laughs> the same as the loans you took out, even if they were from the federal government. Yes, that that is correct. So um, I know that that was one of the big challenges early on. Um, the right type of loan for public service loan forgiveness is a program called direct loans. Mm -hmm. um, the lengthy title is De William D. for direct loans. Mm -hmm. um, that loan program started out as an initial trial um, and then ramped up to become the dominant loan program widely available to everyone in 2010. Mm -hmm. Before 2010, you had the FFEL program, mm -hmm. um, which is the Family Federal um, Education Loans Program. Mm -hmm. And um, under that previous system, there was a guarantor involved, and you worked with local banks, and you got a letter, and then they awarded and 
administered your loans mm-hmm. on behalf of the government. So um, the difference between the two programs is that under FFEL, there were guarantors involved, and under direct loans, the government is the direct lender. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem that I've seen um, that's recently coming to light between those two programs is that it wasn't well communicated about the direct loan requirement, and now more recent data is coming out saying that not all of the schools participated in um, the direct loan program. Mm -hmm. So I think the latest data that I've seen is a report stating that two-thirds of colleges participated in the FFEL program as long as it was available, and then maybe only up to one-third of colleges began offering direct loans during its pilot period up until it became the the official loan program in 2010. Mm -hmm. So if you have FFEL loans, you would need to explore doing a consolidation and specify that you want that consolidation of your loans to be two direct loans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Once you've done that step and they've been consolidated into a direct loan, then and only then the payments that you're making on the consolidation loan that are direct loans, only those payments will count. So, and that's been a huge point of contention as well um, because, again, that was not well communicated. Yeah, yeah. This sort of leads to um, the next couple of questions I have, which were um, recapping for people sort of the outline of the basic steps if someone is just hearing about this for the first time, but also the hurdles. And one of the big themes I think that is going to come up and has already come up is that it is a major hurdle just getting all the communication and getting all the information and that people really have to be their own advocates and their own guides as they go through this process. Um, yes. So it, it sounds, oh, my goodness, whoever came up with this, they are a marketing genius because it makes for some great talking points. Yeah. Fabulous talking points. It, sound, it sounds so easy. <laughs> and yet... In through my experience and through experience in talking with others, it really has been a challenge. I I feel, I almost feel like it's like a second job, yeah. <laughs> or or like I should have a paralegal certificate after this yeah. in in government information or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know the biggest. Based on my own experience, um, the first hurdle that I realized that I had to overcome was getting onto the right uh, loan because I had FFEL (laughs) loans. Mm -hmm. And ironically enough, I had done consolidations before. Now, I heard about the program in 2009, and that's when I actively started trying to um, pursue it. but I did not, I did consolidations. However, my consolidations were just bringing all of my loans from different schools together, and they were still FFEL loans. Yeah. 
So my loan servicer did not tell me about direct loans. I had to specifically ask to have a consolidation to direct loans. And for me, that didn't end up happening until 2010. So um, you figure that's three years into the program where, you know, you think you may be qualifying and yet you're not. <laughs> um, you know, for, any, for anyone who took out loans 2010 and later, mm-hmm. you guys are going to be set because you already are starting off with the correct loan type. Yeah. You have direct loans. So that you won't even have to worry about an additional step of investigating a loan consolidation. Yeah. So, so that does set you guys up for better success um, than some of us earlier birds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, it's important for people to realize, too, that if, like in your case where you had to consolidate but then make sure to move on to the direct loans, your clock doesn't start until you're meeting all of the requirements, right? None of those payments that you made beforehand count toward your forgiveness when you weren't on the qualifying loan type, right? Well, okay, so I have I have to qualify this and say they will not qualify under public service loan forgiveness. Yeah, yeah. However, there was a, another program that was introduced in 2018 with the appropriations bill that's called temporary expanded public service loan forgiveness Um, for the sake of brevity you will hear me call it (laughs) t-e-p-s-l-f but basically there there was a lot of pushback about not being on not having the right type of loans Mm -hmm. and this appropriation was designed to have the Department of Ed review cases of people who had met all the requirements of the of the PSLF program, except they didn't have the right loan type, and and they were on the wrong repayment plan. Okay. So because those were the two those. Those two pieces so far have been the biggest points of contention, is not having the right type of loan and not being on the correct repayment plan. So you can, if you were on FFELP, you can apply for TEPSLF, and they are supposed to go back and review and count what would then be qualifying payments if you made them on FFEL loans and on non-qualifying repayment plans. Okay, so that's really great and important new information. Yes, so so that, that was not introduced until uh, 2018, and it's a limited one-time fund. It's first come, first serve. I believe the allocation was 350 million and um, they haven't had very much success even with that either. Um, I know for me myself I have applied for that and have been denied um, on the basis of not making enough qualifying payments. They're saying I have not made the 120. (laughs) So (laughs) 
so it just it depends on you know who's who's making the decision and i know for the qualifying payment counts um based on my research and reporting from um the government accountability office the decision for the qualifying payments is actually being made by fed loans who is uh is a loan servicer they hold the contract for servicing public service loan forgiveness and so um if you express an interest in wanting to enroll in that program and you're with a different loan servicer, I usually tell people it's only a matter of time before your loan account gets moved over to them for servicing, and that's the reason why. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So for, so for listeners who might be just learning about this and maybe are trying to keep it all straight in their minds, Um, can you sort of walk through, if you were to do sort of a verbal flow chart, what would someone starting from scratch need to start thinking and doing in order to take advantage of the PSLF program? What are the steps involved? Um, let's see. I would probably say, uh, the first place you probably need to start is Um, making sure that you have either a part-time or a full-time job where you are consistently working 30 hours per week. Mm -hmm. Um, For the PSLF program, and I get a lot of questions about this as well, Mm -hmm. 30 hours is considered full-time. It does not matter what the employer designates as full-time. That's what the program designates as full-time. So even if you work at two different, let's say you work part-time for a public library um, in one county and then you work part-time at a public library in another county, if you're cumulatively working 30 or more hours a week, then I would suggest that you consider enrolling in the program. To start that, I would say start off with the employment certification program, literally with the employment certification form, I apologize. Mm -hmm. I often refer to it as ECF. Mm -hmm. Basically, it is a form that you fill out and you take it to your HR department. They write in how many hours a week you're working and sign it, and then you send that off to the loan servicer. that's probably the best place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, some other pieces you can do as well is you can check and verify what types of loans you have. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do that on the Federal Student Aid website, or you can also try logging into your loan servicer's website mm-hmm. to see if they show the type of loan that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, next would be what repayment plan are you on? If you are, I want to say there's about five different qualifying repayment plans uh, that you have the choice of being on. Mm -hmm. Um, One of them will simply be called income-based repayment. Mm -hmm. Another one is called pay, which is pay as you earn. 
There's also the revised pay-as-you-earn plan. Um, and then there's, there's also the standard repayment plan. What I will say is that for the standard repayment plan, um, that is based on a 10-year period. So you would be paying off your loans within the 10-year period. So some places like to call it a qualifying repayment plan for PSLF. I don't like to do that because you're not you're not netting any forgiveness. Right. You are simply you're paying it off within what is considered a standard term. Yeah. Um and so I like to just make sure that I mention that so that it's not misleading. Um I will say that for income-based repayment um, there are a couple of different plans, and it depends on when they were introduced. Um, the other complicating piece for the income repayment plans is that some of them involve what is called a partial financial hardship requirement, mm -hmm. and others do not. <laughs> so um, there's a chart that I often refer to that um, the, the Institute for College Access and Success have put together. They, are, they do a research project called the Project on Student Debt, and they have this lovely chart, one pager, <laughs> that I hand out religiously because it really breaks down the different plans in a way that's easy to understand. <laughs> um, but basically, on any of the income repayment plans, they are looking at making your monthly payment anywhere between 10 to 15 percent of what your discretionary income is. Mm -hmm. So it, once you get on an uh, income-based repayment plan, then you've kind of met the major boxes mm -hmm. of what's involved for PSLF participation. So let's say you start off and you send off your employment certification form to your current servicer. What will end up happening is um, they will then reach out to um, Fed loans because you're basically saying, I'm expressing interest in wanting to participate in PSLF. Um, and even though the employment certification form doesn't come out and say that, I usually encourage people to actually write a cover letter and say and ask for what they want. So literally you're going to say, I'm interested in participating in public service loan forgiveness. And I include that whenever I send any of the forms. <laughs> Um, because when you look at the employment certification form, um, at one time it didn't even have public service loan forgiveness on there. I, they actually added that later on, and I think they added it based on pushback mm -hmm. from participants because it's like income-based repayment plans are not limited to just people that want to participate in PSLF. They are open and available to anyone who is struggling to make their student loan payments. So it's like, how do you convey this information that, okay, I really want to participate in public service loan forgiveness, 
Um, that's why I still recommend, you know, overspeaking <laughs> or overstating what you want so that there's clear communication and saying, okay, I want to, I want to participate in this program. Um, those are probably the biggest pieces to cover. Um, because what ends up happening is your current loan servicer is going to reach out to Fed loans, and then they're going to try to arrange to move your loan servicing from whomever it currently is to Fed loans. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that process takes a while, mm-hmm. um, especially as more people have learned about the program. Um, I know in the Facebook group that I moderate, you know, now the question is, well, how long does it take? It's been like six or nine months. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, now it's it's very hard to say how long that process takes um, because they have. They've gotten a lot of uh, applications yeah. for it as well. Yeah. Um, so I hope that that helps mm-hmm. with the walkthrough process. Um you can never ask too many questions. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, and while it sounds easy to hear, um, I have oftentimes, if I have people say that they are interested in doing it and they still have questions, at least for me locally here in Colorado, mm-hmm. I'm like, can we just set up an in-person meeting and I can walk you through it step by step? Yeah. <laughs> and after that, it's like, Ah, <laughs> so it it seems a little overwhelming to just hear it or see it, and I know that the other thing that complicates it is that um, now the Department of Education and Federal Student Aid are coming up with these electronic tools to try and assist with the process, mm-hmm. and so that's a whole new process, and even for me, I struggle with some of the online forms. Sure. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you pointed to this in your article and also in your public libraries online um, interview, but I've also experienced it personally. I think another big thing for people, too, is, um, right, that sometimes you call with all those questions and you get an agent who's not particularly helpful or not particularly informative or maybe even is not that well informed themselves, right? So um, it seems like you talked about in your experience another agent at a different call might be more helpful than you know don't get discouraged i guess is my point if you have an interaction with your servicer or specifically with fed loan as a servicer and it feels unproductive or disheartening um yes i <laughs> it's it's been interesting because um there have been a lot of complaints about um, fed loans, uh, serv- fed loan as a servicer and, uh, the customer service calls, mm-hmm. um, an experience that, uh, I will share with you that I've shared in other interviews is that, um, you know, there were times, particularly around the time where I was trying to get onto an income based repayment plan. So for me, with my struggle, um, I was on the wrong repayment plan, but every time I would ask to be put on the right repayment plan, or qualifying repayment plan, I should say, Mm -hmm. um, they would calculate it based on household income. Mm -hmm. 
and that would send my payments to a point where it was unaffordable. Mm-hmm. Now, you have to understand that when I was doing it, we had to do snail mail. There wasn't, oh, we get to do an online form, and then they send you an email back or approximate what your payment is now going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, now there's repayment estimator calculators for that, and thank goodness that there are. <laughs> but when I was doing it, it was mail in a form, wait to hear back. Then they put you on the on the loan program, and then, you know, for me, I was signed up for automatic debit from my uh, checking account because that will net you a smaller a small interest rate discount. I think it's 025 percent, mm-hmm. and you know it's like oh my gosh, I can't afford this payment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but even in just trying to ask certain questions, um, so for me, I was able to get onto the repay plan. But when they when that was getting rolled out, <laughs> I probably made like four different phone calls and probably got three different answers on those phone calls. And so I finally made the decision to do it, and I I ended up getting a payment that was so ridiculously high that I called back in a panic, and only after asking to have the call escalated multiple times did I actually reach someone, and I want to say this phone call probably lasted for close to two hours <laughs> while I was on vacation, no less, um, in order for to get everything fixed. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, what I usually encourage people to do is don't be afraid to ask questions. Make sure you're taking notes during the phone calls. Mm-hmm. Um Unfortunately, you can't record the phone calls. <laughs> I don't think it's legal. Yeah. <laughs> um, although sometimes I wish that they would allow us to do that. Um, I know in the past I had requested either a transcript or a copy of past phone calls and pushback that I have gotten from my loan servicer who happens to be fed loans is, oh, well, you need a attorney or a subpoena. <laughs> and I'm like, great. Um, but just documenting what's occurring in the call and what they're telling you. Mm-hmm. Um, I know in my experience when I was trying to get on to repay, um, luckily I had done screenshots of the calculators because we were able to figure out there was a huge discrepancy between the loan servicer's calculator for repayment estimation and uh, the one that federal student aid was using. So I often encourage people to compare between the calculators mm-hmm. as well. Me having that screenshot, <laughs> that was a lifesaver because when I had to mail all my paperwork in, yeah. that's how they were able to see. I'm like, okay, why am I getting this high a number on this calculator that you guys offer, but it, I'm getting this way lower number over here on federal student aid's calculator. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to compare the information directly for yourself. If it doesn't make sense and you question it, you've got to trust your gut. <laughs> yeah, yep, absolutely. Um, so this is an exciting time, I suppose. Since this program started in 2007, 
2017, right about the time that your article was getting a lot of attention and you were doing other interviews, that was, October of that year was the first opening for people to apply for forgiveness. Um, we're about 18 months out from that. What have you seen? Have you been following? How does it look for people who started to become eligible after 10 years of payments? Um, has it actually gone well? Um, well, no. <laughs> no, it has not. It has not gone very well, but there are some explainable reasons for it. Um, I will say that I was I was waiting for them to release the actual forgiveness mm -hmm. application. Mm -hmm. And when I saw the uh, application for loan forgiveness for PSLS, mm -hmm. and I looked at it side by side with the employment certification form, mm -hmm. it is eerily scary how similar they look, and which also to me adds a point of confusion for people that are trying to participate in the program. Yeah. And literally, I looked at it, and my response was, wow, we waited a year for this, <laughs> um, which is kind of cynical. But, yeah, at the same time, I there wasn't enough to differentiate the forms mm -hmm. uh, for users. And so I that does remain a consistent criticism for me is that you have to make sure you're looking very closely at the name of the form because, like I said, if you print them out together and hold them up side by side, mm -hmm. and you can do this after the webinar or whatever, yeah. um, you'll, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about, about if you're not paying attention to what it says at the top, <laughs> that you could easily be filling out the wrong form. Uh. <laughs> um, but some of the things that were challenges with the rollout, of course, were the law was passed in 2007. Well, the income-based repayment plan information didn't come out until 2009. Yeah. Um, let's see. What was the other? There was another um, benchmark, too. Um, Let's see, direct loans wasn't made widely available until 2010. Yeah. Um, the employment certification form, that was released, I want to say somewhere between 2012 and 2013. Yeah. But initially, mm -hmm. it was not considered a requirement to fill it out. And it was not even encouraged to be completed annually. Um, in the presentation work that I started doing um, in 2017 and 2018, mm -hmm. I actively encouraged people to do that because for the employment certification form, if you don't fill that out, you have no way of knowing how many qualifying payments you've made. Yeah. That's the only way to track your progress on it. And so now Department of Ed and the loan servicers have changed their messaging on that because you were starting to see where people were thinking they were on track and they would send in all the paperwork thinking they're, they're good to go. Mm -hmm. And then they find out that there's none of your payments have counted because you're on the wrong 
repayment plan or you have the wrong type of loan. And so now that's why they've changed their messaging and now encourage you to submit it once a year. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it was funny because there, I will admit, as a participant in this program, there are times where I feel a little anxious, and I'm like, okay, well, what if I just submitted like twice a year? And I actually was able to confirm with a rep last year, they're like, you can do that. However, Department of Ed is not really, or your loan servers your loan servicer is not really going to look at it except for once a year. (laughs) So I suppose you could try and drown them in paperwork if you wanted to, but as you get further along in this process, um, I just try to do exactly what they ask for. And so that brings me to another point with, um, that I want to make sure that I mention Mm -hmm. is that if you are on an income based repayment plan, (laughs) do not pay extra. Whatever dollar amount they tell you to pay, pay exactly that. Do not pay more. Do not pay less. And I know that that is contrary information to basic consumer education and personal finance stuff that you've been taught. But with this program, it will only serve to harm you (laughs) if you don't pay exactly what they say when they want it. <laughs> yep. Yep. And in what ways do you feel like it harms? Um, um, it will put, um, now I have not experienced this myself personally, mm-hmm. um, but people that are members of my Facebook group have reported that they are put into some sort of uh, deferment status mm-hmm. of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um or that the payments aren't counted correctly. Yeah. Um, and really, you want to do everything you can to not throw off the payment counts. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> so um, it's it, it basically has only served to cause more grief. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's really no incentive in this particular program with this situation to try and pay off your debt or pay down your debt. It's just do exactly no, what not, you were calculated. Yes, no, not faster. Yeah. If if you if you are a person that does not is not a fan of having debt and you can afford to pay them off faster, then I encourage you to not consider public service loan forgiveness because it's not gonna be the program for you. If you're able to live at home in your parents' basement for like five years and knock and pay off all your student loans, yeah. by all means do it. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're not in that position yeah. and you feel like this is going to be a tool for you, mm-hmm. then you have to you have to do everything to the letter, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. So Trump has proposed ending the PSLF. He, he proposes lots of things, but that's one of them. Um, if if Congress were to go along with him on this, could you talk about, have you thought about how would this play out differently for different borrowers? Because there are lots of different stages of being participatory in this program. There's the not at all yet, or the already paying in, or the nearing forgiveness. Um, What would the implications be around that proposal from Trump? 
Um, I just remembered one thing I forgot to add okay. to the last question, so yeah. I just want to make sure I add this in. Sure. But based on all of those things that I described earlier about when things were released, mm-hmm. honestly, I don't think we're going to start to see, you know, forgiveness in numbers, mm-hmm. at least significant ones, until 2020 to 2022 mm-hmm. at the earliest. Mm-hmm. And because I think that based on that timeline that I've given you, that that's when most people were able to successfully meet all of the requirements, mainly the being on the right type of loan for direct loans. And that's the reason for my prediction for that. I think that it will work better after 2020. Mm -hmm. Um, I suppose it may also depend on who's in office. Um, because it depends on how they want to execute the requirements of the law. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But let's move on to your Trump question. So, um, yes, there there have been rumblings that President Trump wants to try and end PSLF. Based on my research that I have done, um, I think that if the law passes, that it's going to impact more new borrowers than existing borrowers. And that's because he's going to have to specify an effective date. And that means that anyone who's currently participating in uh, PSLF or even TEPSLF, the government will be required to honor those commitments. So in essence, when you hear people say that if you're already participating, you're grandfathered in, that's what they're referring to when they say that. Mm-hmm. Um, I also anticipate that there will be some some legal pushback. I mean, there already is because there are already um, lawsuits that are pending against Fed loans regarding their administration of this program. So I, I think on the basis of um, the legal cases, mm-hmm. I think that will really determine what ends up happening with PSLF as a program. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing I want to reiterate here is that it is the law. So literally any changes that are made involve a change to law. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So from that standpoint, I'm not that worried about PSLF going away. Temporary PSLF, I mean, once the funds run out, the funds are out, yeah. and then it's over. <laughs> yeah. But for PSLF, I, I'm not threatened with that program going away. Do I think that there may be changes? Yes, I think that there will be changes. And I think that even if Trump were to get his wish of revamping the student lending system, that... Um, you know, particularly the changes for the income-based repayment plans, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's that's going to be really challenging. It's always a challenge when you're rolling out a new system. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think the thing that will probably be of most concern is the change to, you know, changing to a different repayment plan, whatever they come up with, and then the fact that, Instead of it 
instead of the repayment plan calculation being based on either a 10% or a 15% of discretionary income, that it's going to be based on uh, 12, I think it's, he's proposed a 12% of your income. Mm-hmm. Um, my big issue with the income-based repayment plans mm-hmm. is that they base it on household income. The problem for me with basing it on household income is that it fails to account for the income gap between genders. So in the example of people that are married, Mm -hmm. for instance, like myself, Mm -hmm. my husband's income is at least twice what I make, if not more. Mm -hmm. He pays on his own student loans. I pay on my student loans. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you for certain that when they have done the calculations for what they think I should be paying a month, Mm -hmm. that there have been times where they've come back and it is equal to half my pay for a month. And I'm like, that's, first of all, that's not the way my, that's not the way my household (laughs) income is managed. Mm -hmm. Um, my husband and I, we kind of keep our finances pretty separate. Mm-hmm. But particularly for PSLF, what I would love to see is I think that they could make the program work so much better instead of basing it on household income, because not everyone in my household works for a qualifying public service organization. I'm the only one that does. My husband does not. Yeah. <laughs> Therefore, he doesn't qualify for the program. So that's part of the reason why I'm not a fan of using household income. I think that they should just use the income of the person who actually works in the qualifying public service. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's easy. That, that's a much easier number to work with. All you have to do is submit your annual W-2 mm-hmm. or get an income statement from the IRS website, which they already link to, mm-hmm. in order to support the calculations that they're making for the income-based repayment plans. I also think it would go a lot further to help more people if they were to use that approach. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the income-based repayment plans can be very difficult to navigate as their own step. Um, it, I know that in my particular experience, we had to look at um, considering whether it was more beneficial to file jointly as a married couple versus file singly um, because specifically because of considering our student loans and the income-based repayment plans. Um, Oh my goodness. So I have to share this story with you. I hope you're sitting down because you'll probably laugh. (laughs) So literally I had this discussion with my husband a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say it was around 2016. And that poor man, that poor man thought I was asking for a divorce. (laughs) I'm like, no, honey, I just want to economically divorce from you for my student loans. That's it. We're still going to, we're still going to be married. We're just going to be married, but file our taxes separately. So yes, trying to navigate that conversation. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, then you have to look at all the ramifications of what that does for your taxes and your household income and Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's okay. Yes. And I mean, for for my, uh, we're married and we file jointly. But I mean, obviously, my husband has to pay the mortgage. I don't make enough money to pay our home mortgage. At least not not on my month not on my monthly income. Right. You know, and 
Yeah, it it makes it very challenging and very difficult, uh, particularly when there is an income disparity between genders, Mm -hmm. you know, where men are making two plus times what women are making. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's interesting because there is some recent research. um, Let's see. Who did that research? It's the UU. No, I'm sorry. It's AAUW. Let me see if I can find what that stands for. Give me one second. Mm -hmm. So, yes, um, there's a recent study produced by the AAUW, and it's called Deeper in Debt, Women and Student Loans. And this new research that has come out basically says that You know, women hold the majority of student loan debt, and so it'll be interesting to see if this research is factored into future policies going forward as it relates to public service loan forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, I know for me, I'm definitely impacted by that um, where... You know, my husband makes significantly higher income than I do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, I know a lot of uh, my peers are in the same boat. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know that I think of the recent presidential nominees, the one candidate who has tried to address it has been Elizabeth Warren. And I've tried to read through her plan, but... um, I'm still trying to figure out how <laughs> yeah. how exactly that would help me or benefit me, yeah. um, especially if PSLF doesn't go away, right. <laughs> right. Um, which I don't anticipate that it will. Mm-hmm. But I do definitely think that it's something that merits addressing and concern as, you know, attendance rates at colleges are, you know, at least half and half or male attendance is declining, which is now a noted trend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, in uh, a profession that's dominated by women as far as numbers go. Um, yes, yes. And, be- the, <laughs> and, and the same would go for, for teaching as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think if they were to make that change and base it just on the person's income that works in the qualifying profession, mm-hmm. that would go a long way yeah. towards, you know, it actually being beneficial to more people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that that would be my that would be one of my dreams to see. <laughs> <laughs> so and I know that there are some other proposals that are out there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know it's a trending HR topic as far as you know some employers beginning trying to do pilot programs to do some sort of assistance or matching program to help with paying off student loans. Oh, mm-hmm. So that may be something worth considering for you uh, millennials that are entering into the workforce. Yeah. Check out the benefit packages real carefully. Yeah. Um, and I know that another proposal um, that is being considered has to do with, you know, trying to change PSLF from being an all or nothing to shorter increments of service and still netting some sort of forgiveness. Yeah. So like possibly at a five-year interval, 
um, they'll forgive a certain amount. And then if you go through all the way to the 10 years, then another uh, portion is forgiven. So, you know, those are some promising things that are being considered. It's just going to depend on what passes and what doesn't. Yeah. 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 Now, you talk in your article about and in other interviews about how your frustration with your own personal experience is really what drove you into this advocacy. And I think it's so great that you're doing this advocacy, by the way. It's, um, it's a topic that doesn't get a lot of attention. It's niche in a way, but also really tangibly impactful to people's lives. So thank you for doing the work that you're doing. Um, can you talk a little bit about especially since this podcast is aimed at various kinds of libraries, but people who are in or aspiring to or interested in leadership roles in libraries, um, do you see a role for managers and administrators um, in advocating to their employees around PSLF? Because you said that going into advocacy is sort of the way that you got back um, some some strength around very frustrating experiences and that you really advocated to your coworkers. So how do you see this sort of in a managerial or leadership um, relationship within libraries as a topic that might be considered? Um, well, I definitely think that there is a role for, for leadership and advocacy in this area. In this area. I know for me, um, my therapist will be very proud <laughs> when I say, you know, control, take control over what you can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so that, that's really what it was about for me is like, okay, what are the things that I have power over to control? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons why um, it was important for me and why I think it's important for managers um, and leadership to um, engage in this topic is, um, well, first of all, when I, when I started this at my place of employment, um, you know, I found out my HR di- was not aware mm-hmm. of the program and didn't have a lot of knowledge about it. Mm-hmm. So really, it was about educating them. Mm-hmm. And I have to say that I'm so thankful for um, the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau um, and Seth Frontman's work mm-hmm. that he did for that agency because he actually created um, an employer's guide that I regularly refer to. And literally, that's what I did. I printed off his employer's guide um, to student loans, yeah. to assisting employees with student loan repayment. And I, I sent it to my HR department and I said, hey, is this something we can talk about? You know, this is a perk that you can offer at no cost because it's a government program. And really, I just want you to disseminate the information and share it with everyone. Mm -hmm. Because here's the thing, is it's not limited to what your position is into the organization. If the organization qualifies, everyone from the janitor, if they're not subcontracted out, Mm Yeah. All the way up to your director can qualify yeah. to participate in public service loan forgiveness. The other piece, um, based on my advocacy work, that has also been helpful is that if you are a parent and you have taken out PLUS loans 
for your children's education and you work in public service, there is a way that you can work on having those PLUS loans forgiven based on your work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was really surprised to learn that a lot of people were not aware of it. Um, So to me, I think it's important because, you know, when you're dealing with a lot of financial stress, I mean, that that's taking you, it's taking the employee, their focus away from customer service and being the best that they can be while at work mm-hmm. because they're preoccupied with all these other pressures. Yeah. Um, you know, and depending upon what the situation is, I mean, it could, it could be, you know, you have some staff that are working multiple jobs because full-time hours aren't offered at where you're currently at, and so that can be a contributing factor. But, I mean, when debt feels like an albatross around your neck, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, of course you're going to be less present and more distracted. Yeah. So I think that, you know, if you, want you, if you want your employees to be able to offer the best service that they can, then it's in their interest to talk about it and offer it as well. I mean, I have no problems with bribing my HR department with chocolate (laughs) to sign all my forms, but literally that's what they're having to do. They're having to just verify, they're having to verify how many hours that person works and sign off on paperwork. And that's pretty much it. After that, you know, it goes into Department of Ed's and federal student aid's hands. Yeah. Um, The way that I was able to accomplish it pretty easily was I said, can we just put links on our staff portal to the information? Mm -hmm. So they have the hyperlinks. We don't have to worry about doing a ton of updates Mm -hmm. because federal student aid, whenever they do their updates, I mean, as long as they keep the links the same, (laughs) (laughs) Um, then there's not a lot of updates that need to be done from that end. But then it's made available to all the staff. And, you know, they can use it, they cannot use it. It's, it's totally up to them. But to me, it's about making the information available yeah. and letting people know that it's available. So I was very thankful to have my organization support in doing that. Um, ironically enough, and I can't take any credit for this personally, <laughs> but um, apparently there was a legislative bill at the state level asking for exactly that, sharing public service loan information, uh, program information with all staff that may qualify, and that did recently pass. So starting in August, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. all of the state employees and school districts and all of those organizations will now get access to that information um, at a state level and I'm so excited to hear that because it's like how many people are don't know about the program that could be getting some economic relief, yeah. you know, at least for student loans, whether it be for themselves, their children, et cetera, yeah. um, and have the tools to hopefully successfully enroll. Yeah. Now, when the questions get more complicated, <laughs> people don't hesitate to reach out to me via email. Um, and I try to answer them as best I can, whether we do it via phone call or in-person meeting. 
Um, and but they've been really supportive about that as well. <laughs> That's so good. But I definitely, but I definitely think that that is necessary, especially if you know organizations want to attract top talent, because it definitely, based on readings that I've done, um, student loan repayment assistance has is now becoming a top or in demand benefit from younger workforce. Yeah. That makes sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> um so since you mentioned him, Seth Frotman's uh resignation from the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau specifically spurred and talked about um his findings of the failings of the PSLF program and the servicing done by FedLoan. So do you see a role for us as librarians in advocating to the public also about that? Is that something um, that falls under and is connected to our dissemination of information and access to information role in the community? Um, you know, I'm not sure about that. I, I, first of all, let me just say, mm -hmm. I am, I'm an admirer of his work. I, I used to regularly refer people to Consumer Finance Protection Bureau mm -hmm. um, because they did have um, an online complaint form mm -hmm. that you could file, and there was a timely response. And when I say timely response, you would get an acknowledgement within usually 48 hours, and you would get some sort of <coughs> excuse me outcome or an attempt at a resolution within two weeks to a month. Mm -hmm. um, but that was when that office was being staffed. Yeah. Um, under the current administration, they really kind of gutted the staffing. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me, and other things. Mm -hmm. And so I no longer recommend it as a complaint resolution, but I really do admire that he had the courage to stand up for what he believed in and call it for what it was, that it wasn't right, mm -hmm. and walk away. I mean, I can't even imagine <clears throat> the conversation that he had with his family yeah. before he actually did that, you know, because you're talking about your, your own livelihood here. Yeah. and while he has started his own um, agency, I think it's, I think his nonprofit is the Student Borrowing Center, mm -hmm. um, and he still continues to work and advocate on those things, mm -hmm. um, for which I'm extremely thankful for. Uh, yeah, I can't even imagine um, what that's like. The thing that I will say, based on my own experience, is that um, I have found that even as a librarian, that it kind of ties into the current discussion that's going around about are librarians political? Ah, uh, yeah. You know, and there's this very fine line of providing good information that needs to be out there and not I siding with one side or the other mm -hmm. and so um, that makes it more challenging mm -hmm. so for me for instance all of my the majority of my public service loan forgiveness advocacy mm -hmm. 
has been done outside of work hours on my own time. Um, Even when I reviewed the ALA um, ethics Mm -hmm. um, recently in preparation for our interview, um, (coughs) they have a statement that alludes to, and it actually does spell out uh, loan forgiveness as being a financial interest. Mm Mm-hmm in something. And so, you know, that that really kind of creates a gray area. It's like mm-hmm. you know, how how do you navigate it? Yeah. Um when when it has come up in patron interactions and I've had a few times where it's come up as a patron interaction, um I have just simply handled it as I would be happy to meet with you on my own time to discuss it further. Okay. Um, but as far as doing a public push for programming, mm-hmm. um, I have not gotten much support, at least at my organization, mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. I have received limited support as far as conference presentations. Okay. <clears throat> but as far as doing something where, you know, maybe you're airing a documentary about uh, student loan debt and then maybe doing a question and answer session afterwards mm-hmm. or something like that, which is something that I had envisioned. Mm-hmm. Um, I have not gotten support for doing anything like that. And I it may be because it's perceived as being too political. Gotcha. Gotcha. <coughs> so, yeah, yeah I, I just advise people to proceed with caution and to try to be as objective as you can. But I do lean slightly towards the side of, I do think librarians are political. Well, uh, in a somewhat related sort of question, um, not directly uh, factual, you noted in your 2017 article that student loan debt is the new shared experience that we generally don't talk about. Do you have anything to say from your vantage point at this point about how that might play a role in your PSLF advocacy work? Do you feel like stigma or shame or even just a reluctance to speak about student loan debt is inhibiting to borrowers who might be otherwise taking advantage of this program? Um, I tend to be pretty outspoken and vocal. <laughs> um, I don't have... A problem with discussing things in the open. Mm-hmm. However, there there have been times where I've gotten feedback where some of the things I talk about make others feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, some of that just goes to, I think some of that goes to just our culture. In American culture, We don't talk about money. Um, And for some reason, I'm not sure why that is, because, you know, it's not a unique experience. I find that if you don't talk about it, you're not able to figure out if, there is a pattern mm-hmm. occurring. Mm-hmm. 
um, or if there's a problem to identify, mm-hmm. or if it's a unique situation. Um, in some ways, to me, it kind of parallels um, the mortgage crisis of 2008. And the reason why I say that is because if people didn't start collecting or sharing their stories, mm-hmm. then there wouldn't have been a way to figure out or identify that there was a problem, yeah. a legitimate problem going on. To me, the power of stories and shared experience has the power to overcome the oppression of silence. Had people remained silent about the mortgage crisis, we wouldn't have figured out that there was this thing going on, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, or figure out strategies to navigate this program. And for me, that was part of the reason why I started my group was at the time, my boss and I, we were both struggling. And I said, it can't be just us. (laughs) So, how how do we collect these stories? And I have to say that I'm extremely thankful to the group MappingStudentDebt.org because <coughs> excuse me because they were able to quantify with data, although it's from credit reporting, and combine it with census survey data and really map and show the impacts of student loan debt on a local level. And to me, when you look at that data, and I show it regularly in my presentations, it's pretty powerful. Yeah. <clears throat> so, I think that's the need for the discussion of it because, <clears throat> you know, if people think that they're suffering alone or that it's not a common problem mm-hmm. and it never gets discussed, it's going to impact work performance in other ways. Yeah. So even from a staff management point, it, to me it makes sense yeah. to discuss it. We all spend so much time at work. I mean, 40 hours a week, if yeah. you're full-time, is a long time. Yeah. That's a significant chunk. And I'm sorry, life happens and you got to discuss it. So if you don't discuss it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to impact or come out in other ways. Yeah. So I'd rather just discuss it and deal with it head on yeah. and come up with a solution. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm sorry. I know we're wearing out your voice. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just, I really want to thank you again. I think that this is, I think it's so great what you're doing to break down the silence, to fill the gap where there's been a missing for information, collated information, clarified information in plain language, um, and really the outreach component that you're doing to communicate specifically with librarians because that's pretty much who's listening to this podcast. Um, And, you know, I'm a librarian. I really care about this. Um, But to a wider community, too. Like you said, it's not only public librarians, it's academic, it's a librarian who works for any nonprofit, any 501c3. 
but also people in other roles who work for government, public service, and nonprofit agencies. Um, the work that you're doing is really helpful to so many people. So thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure to talk with you guys. Really appreciate it. You have a great rest of your day, and thank you again for being with us, Kyra. Thank you. Have a great day, guys. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to Breakroom Chats. To continue the conversation, find the New Professionals community on Facebook or on Twitter at llama underscore new pros. To reach the Breakroom Chats team directly, email us at nps.brc at gmail.com. And if you like us, rate us on iTunes. See you next time for more Breakroom Chats.